Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with author Herschel Cobb. During our conversation, Herschel talks about his book, Heart of a Tiger, growing up with my grandfather, Ty Cobb. In his book and throughout our interview, Herschel talks about the Ty Cobb he knew years after the Georgia Peach had retired from baseball, a nurturing, thoughtful person who was a rare source of kindness during Herschel's difficult and often abusive upbringing. Welcome to the show. Today we're sitting with Herschel Cobb, grandson of Ty Cobb, and we're going to talk about his recently published book, Heart of a Tiger, My Life with My Grandfather. Um, Herschel, thank you, first of all, for taking the time to, to talk to me. Dan, it's a real pleasure. Pleasure to meet you, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks a lot. Um, as we kind of talked a little bit before the show started, um, I'd love to just kind of know to start um, what your kind of first memories are of your grandfather. And you, know, you talk a lot in, in the book about your relationship with him. Um, where did it start? What do you remember? And where did the book come from? Where, what, what inspired you to want to write this? Hey, this you story? got a couple of fun questions there. <clears throat> the beginnings of the book were when one evening I was with my daughter when she was about uh, 11 or 12 years old, and we were looking at old family photos, and there was a picture of her as a three- or four-year-old, and she's having a wonderful time around a pond, uh, chasing ducks, and I took a picture of this, and it's really a charming picture. And she asked me just right off the wash, "Daddy, tell me about when you were a little boy." And I was stopped in my tracks because my mind quickly flashed over my childhood, and I could not recall one instance where I was with either of my parents where I wasn't either afraid or terrorized, and I get into a chapter in the book describing some of the details of that, not uh, to do anything except to set the background as to why in my life my grandfather emerged as such an important figure to me. When I was a youngster, we lived in Twin Falls, Idaho, and my grandfather had come to visit my father the year before the first chapter in the book. They were avid duck hunting fans in the Snake River is a really great place for that kind of activity. And they shot a lot of ducks and fed a lot of people in, in Twin Falls, Idaho. And ducks tasted great, especially wild game. The, the year that I was going to be seven years old, my grandfather arrived at our house. And I, I knew that we were going to go duck hunting because my father had told me earlier in the day that it was time that I learned how to shoot a shotgun. Well, I was in the first grade. I was 47 inches tall and about 58 pounds. And I know this because while I was writing my book, I found an old report card that says first grade. So I do remember being small, but we went out to an island on the Snake River. And my father's relationship with his father was uh, really contentious. My grandfather had set my father up in business in Twin Falls, Idaho, and funded the business and funded my father, and my father was spending an enormous amount of money on basically uh, adult toys, airplanes, speedboats, and whatnot. 
and my grandfather's relationship with with money was much more conservative and frugal and they had some things to talk about i could sense that because the tension in our house just prior to my grandfather's arrival hmm. was sizzling hmm. uh, my mother was drinking my father was drinking but we managed through dinner we managed to get into the car modestly middle of the evening and drive to the Snake River, but my father's anger and wrath was evident the entire way driving down the uh, gorge of the Snake River toward his small cabin. And so we, on this duck hunting trip, at the end of it, I was really praying that we were done, we'd go home and I wouldn't have to uh, try and shoot a shotgun, but my father had uh, definitely another idea. Um, told me to line up some bottles and tin cans on a low-lying branch and uh, put a 20-gauge shotgun into my right shoulder, put my right hand on the trigger, and put my left hand on the uh, stock, and I, I barely reached. It was really a stretch and just and told me I was going to shoot this gun, and that was it or else I was going to get a whipping. Well, anyway, that I did, and it knocked me on my butt. Um, I stood up, and my ear was ringing. Uh, I could smell the burnt uh, powder searing my lungs and my hands were full of pebbles and all scratched up and I was scared. And off in the distance, um, I heard um, my grandfather's voice yelling as to what we were doing. Well, my, gra my father yanked me up again and started to uh, reload and, and he had a lot, a lot of shells in the gun and put the gun back into my shoulder and was holding me in a position to shoot. And I was just scared. I knew what was going to happen. It was going to be pain. I was going to get knocked on my butt again. And I was holding the gun. And <clears throat> out of the corner of my right eye, I saw a hand reach in and take hold of my father's hand and just start squeezing and gripping. And I knew it was my grandfather. I, you know, he had really strong wrists, really a strong grip. And <clears throat> he gripped so hard that my father ultimately let go. I describe it in the first chapter of my book. It was very powerful for me. I had never been protected by an adult male before that moment. And it really stuck in my memory. I mean, just implanted. Mm -hmm. And when I got home, you know, I lay in bed and kind of re rethought all the things that I'd been through up through the six and a half years that I'd been alive, and most of them were terrifying. So that was the first chapter. Um, I was... At one point, at the same time, I loved the idea of my grandfather's protecting me. And right next to it was the fear that maybe he wouldn't be there. So I progressed through these chapters uh, to the uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4, wherein my father dies when I was young. I was 8 when my father died. He was 33, mm -hmm. tremendously overweight and just died, fell into a parking lot on a business trip and was was dead. I was much relieved. Hmm. Uh, and it, it, I realized that uh, my father wasn't going to be able to harm me anymore. But uh, terribly at the same time, I felt very, very guilty because I knew that I wanted my father away. I didn't want him to hurt me. And I thought it felt responsible for his death. And yet I was relieved. Uh, and I also knew that I would really never have a father. All my friends had fathers. Um, so it was that summer that, um, uh, well, it wasn't that summer, but 
when my father died, my grandfather came to town. He went to the funeral. Uh, I did not attend my father's funeral, uh, and I didn't see my grandfather that summer. Next summer, we didn't see granddaddy, but the summer after that, 1952, we went to visit our grandmother and arrived to find my uncle, uh, Ty Jr., very, very sick and in a wheelchair on the porch of my grandmother's house, and he had a brain tumor. By the end of the summer, he would not be able to recognize his own sons who were there for the summer, too. He had basically come to die. That summer, my grandfather was incredibly sad. He'd lost both of his older sons, who he'd never had a good relationship with. He now knew, he, he you could see on his face that he realized he would never know them as grown men and have a, a caring relationship of any kind with them. Uh, he had never overcome all of the um, all of the tribulations they had been through. And when we went to visit him, we, meaning my sister and my younger brother and myself, uh, Granddaddy had pulled himself together to actually visit with us. I can remember very distinctly he had missed places on his face where he hadn't shaved. Uh, his socks didn't match. His shoelaces were untied. He was slouching in a chair. I thought, oh, my God, he's sick and he's going to die on us. But my sister, uh, two years older than me, uh, little plump but beautiful curly red hair, um, just the biggest heart, just the biggest heart. She saw everything, walked right up to Granddaddy sitting in his chair, put her arms around her, his neck, and said in his ear, he says, Granddaddy, just you wait. Everything is going to be all right. And he just melted. He melted. You could see it. He looked at her, and it was like somebody had put salve on a wound. Anyway, we saw him a few other times that summer. And, of course, the next time he was cleaned up, the house was open and airy. He was happy to see us. You could till, still tell he was morose over the loss of his sons. But at the last visit in August, uh, he told us that he hoped that we would do something special the next summer, and he was good to his word. Next summer, we went up to uh, Palo Alto from Santa Maria to visit my grandmother. She made sure we went to visit Granddaddy, and uh, he started planning a trip uh, to go to Lake Tahoe to his cabin, which we did. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of uh, summer after summer of spending time with him, learning about life, getting a few lessons, uh, laughing and eating a lot of ice cream and uh, basically enjoying time with a old fellow. So, all right, Dan. <laughs> you, uh, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned this, the, the big hands, the seemingly big heart from your grandfather growing up. How aware do you think he was when your father was still alive and, and you write about the bickering and the, the abusiveness of, of your parents um, of that relationship and the dynamic between your parents and your brother and yourself and, yeah. and your siblings. You know, Dan, I don't write about that type of thing in my book because I didn't have the adult vision to see what was going on. So I, I, and I purposely wrote my book from firsthand experience. Um, people had suggested to me, says, don't you want to put a little adult reflection in here? I said, well, I, I end up speculating. Right. It, you put you piece to get families piece together their histories from hearing about the same incident from two or three people, and then later in life you have a little experience to say, "Oh, I guess I can figure out what was going on." Mm -hmm. So I can take a guess. Um, 
You know, I've seen pictures of my mother when she was a young lady, very, very attractive, very much wanted to be a movie star, very much caught up with that, and she married Ty Cobb's son. And then she ended up in a small town in Idaho, 20,000, 18,000 people, that was basically snowbound for six months out of the year, and there was nothing to do. And she longed to live in Los Angeles. Uh, so you can piece together, uh, my grandfather uh, did not respect nor like my mother. Uh, he, she was always asking him for money, even while my father was alive. Why, why is why don't you give your son more money? Why don't we? Why aren't we able to do this? And I could overhear those conversations. There was no place in my book to get into that because it's it's a long, endless path if you do that. And I was writing about my experiences with my grandfather. So I would imagine that my father's relationship with his wife were was awful. Uh, at the time that my father died, they were in the middle of uh, divorce proceedings. Uh, my father had become physically violent, uh, and that was very, very ugly. It's scary. It mm. is really scary for a child of um, eight to see his father hit his mother and draw blood. Um, so I kind of avoided that, realizing that a few, uh, one or two paragraphs of describing what I actually witnessed was probably enough to describe their relationship. Uh, you mentioned his love of ice cream, and it seems like throughout the book that he's always eating very well. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, it, you also mentioned some of the lessons that um, that you you learned during your time with, with Ty Cobb. What are the two or three that stick out in your mind of lessons about life or lessons about family or friendship? Well, for better or for worse, the the first thing that my son always hears, and he's in sports, is is I my son's name is Ty. He's named after my grandfather. I say, Ty, never give up, never give up, and that has a lot to do with sports and going into a, a competition where you're just not going to give up. And the other fellow has to know that. And once the other fellow knows that you are never going to give up, then you can proceed to dominate. Uh, that was a good lesson. Um, there were other lessons of, you know, Cobb really respected the, the rules of baseball. Uh, there's a lot of people who come up to me and say, oh, your grandfather spiked people. And I say, you know, I've looked at maybe 500, 800 pictures of him playing baseball. I've never seen one that really qualifies as a uh, use of, of spikes, but I have read about the times of uh, baseball when he played from uh, biographies of other players and uh, Sam Crawford who played next to Ty Cobb in center field. Sam Crawford played center. My grandfather played right for 15 years. One interview asked Sam Crawford, he says, well, Cobb, did he ever use his spikes? He says, no, no, no. Cobb never spiked anybody on purpose. We ran into a second baseman that wanted to position themselves three feet in front of the base and you had to get to the base and they had to learn to move. And if they got nicked, then they were responsible for that. Right. But other than other than that type of thing, um, he was very respectful of the rules. Uh, baseball was his life, and he loved baseball. And I think that uh, one of the things that I do, for better or for worse, is uh, I, I'm very fair, and I respect the rules. Uh, mm. I always tell another guy what I'm going to try and do. Mm. Um, maybe I'm successful, maybe I'm not. Um, 
Let's see. Um, you, you mentioned there are a couple a couple instances in in the book, and I, I think a, a few of the stories in it would be very revelatory for people that have a, a somewhat of a common cultural impression of your grandfather. One is is the way in which he would help and you witness some of these instances of friends of his or people that he knew from earlier in life who had fallen on hard times. Um, and I think one of the one of the things that he mentioned to you in the book is find friends that stick in life and stay with them. Yeah. Well, most people know that Cobb's experience with the Tigers in his first few years were uh, a lot of what we would call hazing now, but it may have been more than that with the Tigers. Uh, and he became a loner. So he didn't have a lot of friends on the team that he played with uh, throughout the year. He ended up with a lot of male friends, uh, mainly around his love of the outdoors and bird hunting. He had a lot of friends who were in business. Uh, you and I were talking earlier about growing up in Detroit in the early 1900s where Detroit was vibrant with innovation, much like um, San Francisco Bay Area is now. And if you couldn't see it, uh, it was silly. I mean, my grandmother told me stories about when they rented their first house in Detroit, they had um, gas lights inside and on the street. And then one year she, they rented a house and she went to Detroit and there were workmen out there putting in electricity and you could flip a switch and have lights at night until late at night. And it was, it was a huge change, very, very innovative. Um, but uh, let's see. Now your question was, we're going to uh, the the question was was just generally the the people that he was able to to stick with throughout his life and right. and well, then stood up for later in life. Well, the few friends that he made in baseball were definitely close. The reason that he wanted me to have a lot of friends was that he grew up from he started playing baseball at the age of eighteen, and he didn't have a lot of friends on his baseball team. But it was important for him to see that his grandsons had lots of friends and a few that really stuck. Um, I, I write one chapter about uh, things that I witnessed when we went up to Lake Tahoe out to dinner to the North Shore Club where he surreptitiously planned to uh, deliver large sums of money to some old baseball colleagues of his that uh, weren't as fortunate as he, did not invest their money in what was going on in their early years, and had definitely from their appearance were, had fallen on hard times. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, Ty Cobb was extremely um, generous with them, and this, I learned, was a yearly thing. But he was generous in a lot of ways that were, some of it was funny, and, and some of it was very, very planned. Um, uh, one, one funny trip we took, and there's nothing really serious in this chapter except the, the joy of being with uh, an older grandfather who starts out very, very dapper-looking, and it's in the heat of August, and he goes through the Central Valley of California and begins to undo his tie, shed his vest, undo his shirt. But we stopped at these uh, fruit stands that were run by Mexicans and some Japanese, and this was his routine going up to Lake Tahoe, stop at the fruit stands and buy flats of fruit. And the first two stops we made, he bought some to, well, pea, uh, apricots or and maybe tomatoes but he paid for a flat that was you know maybe a dollar and a half with a hundred dollar bill and i thought that wow he's really he's making a mistake my grandfather's beginning to not be able to count his change so i asked him about it and i got a real lesson in in looking around at guys who work hard and they're just they just make it they go from one one 
paycheck or one transaction to the next. And he told me that when he was a young man, he worked behind a mule uh, plowing fields for his father in a cotton uh, field. And he worked with a Negro boy. And he and the Negro boy never had any jingle in there. That's what he called it, yeah. jingle. We never had any anything extra, no jingle in our pockets. And he was determined not to, not to live that hmm. or to see other people live that. Uh, the major instance of his generosity was his creation of an educational foundation. And I was kind of fortunate. It's a tail end of a chapter, but he was writing letters uh, in 1953 to various people. He wanted uh, their help, uh, set it up, run it, distribute money to any kid in Georgia, no matter who he was, who manifested a real desire to go on to college, mm. could apply for funds. And he was very excited about that. Uh, it was a personal thing. He dedicated it to the memory of his father, who was an educator. Mm. Uh, you may not realize that Ty Cobb never finished high school. So, and he was self-taught. He was smart and determined. And always had a book. He always was always asking you about books and what you were learning and clearly had a, a passion for education. Um, what was his break? How did he get out of working on the fields to getting a chance to even play baseball? Um, you mentioned that he started playing baseball when he was 18 years old, but how did he go from the fields of Georgia to become a major league baseball star? Well, Dan, he, I think he started playing baseball earlier every chance he got. Yeah, And when he when he got a position playing baseball, what was the called the Sally League, the Southern uh, something league, and it's around Georgia. He started writing letters to sports writers. And the recipient of a number of these letters was Grant Lowe Rice. Mm. And this is documented in various places. I've never seen any of these letters, and Granddaddy never talked about them. But when you read them, and Grant Lowe Rice obviously knew that the handwriting came from the same kid, but the name was different because <laughs> they were very simple names like Terry Jones or something like that. And it was just saying, you got to see this, this kid Cobb. He can run. He can hit. He can field. And he started self-promoting. Mm. And... You know, it's a marvel, that, I mean, how determined he was to get noticed and fulfill what uh, his promise was. Hmm. Uh, you know, he, he did well. He got a chance to play with Detroit. His contract was sold. He still wrote um, self-promotion letters and did what he could to uh, get before fans, before sports writers. He got hmm. along with Gretlin Rice. He got along with sports writers. And and he was a promoter. Hmm. Um you know, over the course of his life, he acted, uh, I think he acted in a movie, he acted in a play. He didn't like either of those activities. He said it's a lot easier playing baseball. Uh, but he he uh, promoted a lot of products, um, spokesman for Coca-Cola. There were a number of cigarette companies where you see the, the famous old um, uh, baseball trading cards have a tobacco insignia on them. And he was out there promoting himself, promoting baseball. He believed in baseball as a, a way that anybody with talent could lead a better life. Right. And that was just part of him. He, uh, we, we were talking about this before the show started, but that he, for a long period, I mean, his baseball professional career stretched for more than two decades. And for many years, he was the highest paid player in baseball, which I would imagine is where the initial capital that he ended up um, obtaining would come from. Do we know what that would translate to now? You know, baseball players now who are in the top 50 are making millions and millions of dollars a year. 
what was what's the equivalent if we were to go back in time and he was making fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars a year? What would that look like today? Today, <clears throat> we we have no way of being certain about that. Um, I mentioned before we went on the air that I think that every sport needs when they're young and baseball was young in those days needs a somebody who is noticeable hmm. somebody who is fiery somebody who attracts attention somebody that fans want to go to the ballpark to see and if you see pictures of ballparks in those days there is no uh, fence out in in left center and right field they put a big rope out there and they ask people to stay behind it but that's maybe 450 feet out so if you hit the ball out there you stand a chance of inside the park home run and then on on really on full days they they pulled the rope in to accommodate more more fans and Cobb was a great promoter of baseball he thought baseball was a really really great sport and then Cobb's um call him his, his highlight years from 1905 to 1920 then you, in 1920 you have Ruth coming along and then Ruth starts to build Yankee Stadium but it, it's really not any different in in modern generations. Everybody knows who Michael Jordan is, hmm. and everybody would want to go to a, a basketball game to see Michael Jordan in person or one of the stars that they like. And that's good for sports, and it was good for baseball to have a Ty Cobb. He was fiery. He was exciting. He could hit. He could get on base. And that's when the game started because there was no telling what he was going to do. In fact, there is an interesting interview with Babe Ruth. Uh, they, they ask a series of, of baseball players who's the greatest, and all of these guys, uh, Roger Hornsby and Babe Ruth and Tris Speaker, and they're, they're talking about Ty Cobb. But Babe Ruth is really funny because my grandfather really liked Babe Ruth. They had a golf tournament together to raise money for charity. He liked to tease Babe Ruth. He liked going out. He couldn't see how anybody could eat that much and enjoy their <laughs> life that much because Ty Cobb was, you know, he was always in training. And he had a lot of sympathy for Ruth in Ruth's later years when Ruth was sick. I mean, that bothered my my grandfather a lot. But in this particular interview, Ruth is very charming. He says, oh, it's, it's easy. The Ty Cobb is the greatest. And the interviewer says, how can that be? You hit all these home runs. I mean, any time you could hit the ball out of the park. And Ruth says, wait a minute, wait a minute, young man. If I come to the plate and they, won't, they don't want to deal with me, all they do is walk me. And once I'm on first base... I'm out of their hair. But just think about it. If Cobb comes to the plate and you walk him, that's just when your troubles begin because he's going to tell you he's going to steal second, and then he's going to steal third, and then he might steal home, and the whole game changes. Well, and, and in fact, that's true. There are many accounts of Cobb getting on base uh, with a walk and stealing first, second, third, and home. He stole home unassisted 54 times in his career. So it's an exciting, you know, I grew up, when Ricky Henderson yeah. was playing baseball, and he, I think he holds a base stealing record, and I got to see him steal bases, and he got on first base, and the whole game changed. The pitcher had to pay attention. The second baseman couldn't play where he wanted to. The shortstop had to be prepared, and you knew Ricky Henderson was going to go down to second, and he did, and he made it, and then yeah. you had to account for that. So, you know, it, there's no telling in monetary terms what what those salaries would be because you could speculate about Ruth too. I mean, right. Ruth hit all those home runs and for the first six years of his career he was a pitcher. Right. And if you just average that out, that's a lot more home runs. Uh, one interesting thing, and it's a tidbit, is that all of the time that Cobb spent in cotton fields and learning about the cotton trade paid off because he could see the writing on the wall 
that World War I was coming. And he started speculating in cotton futures on the exchanges. And that's where he made his first real chunk of change. He made $144,000 one year. In those days, 1913, 1914, speculating in cotton and turned around and started buying GM stock and, and masses of Coca-Cola stock. He was friends with the, you know, the, the uh, you can't call them CEOs in those days, but the fellows who, were, who owned those companies, the Woodruff family in Georgia, uh, very, very successful, wealthy family. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, we, we uh, in talking about his his interest in business, he he seems like a Renaissance man in many ways. Interested in many different ver- many different things in life, hunting, athletics, uh, history, books, and finance as well, and business. Um, you mentioned and you write about this in the book his uh, purchasing of GM stock and Coca Cola back when he was still a relatively young man, was he just interested in business and therefore was able to read a lot about different businesses? I know you mentioned that people that own these companies were interested in getting to know him because he was the baseball star. Was he just better at listening to what their um, their suggestions were on what to buy and when, and he disregarded other companies that ended up not becoming Coca-Cola and GM? Yeah. And that's re- really hard to say. You don't know... I don't know. I wasn't there. But I do know the funny story about buying the Coca-Cola stock. And I've told many people this, is that when my father died, my father's estate was in a mess. He was basically out of money. So there was a lot of lawyering going around, and, and I was uh, I could overhear some of these conversations of one chunk of Coca-Cola stock that a bank needed to sell. They had to f- calculate the basis. Yeah. And it so happened that they could trace those numbers of shares back to the purchase date. And they had been purchased with a loan from the Woodruff family to Ty Cobb as his first stock. They loaned him the money to buy stock in, in this soda pop. Hmm. There, there weren't soda pops. So they were determined to make Coca-Cola the dominant uh, uh, soft drink in the nation. And I think that their persistence and Ty Cobb's he had an astute mind. He followed these things. I mean, he was buying stock well into the times that I was visiting him in the summer. He had the same stockbroker in Atlanta, worked for Robinson Humphrey Company, and his name was Ralph. And uh, they talked on the phone when I was present at Granddaddy's house, and he was still interested in buying purchasing companies of what they hoped would be dominant companies and industries. But I think that part of it is having been in Detroit where uh, General Motors occurred because you bought stock in a company that made cars and they got purchased by what was eventually General Motors. Hmm. And that took some years. It's not like, unlike um, where we live in Silicon Valley, San Francisco. You know, it's a, it's a standard process where big companies buy smaller companies. Yeah. yeah. Last question I want to ask you. Um, you it, Later in the book, it's, it's revealed that your grandfather had been um, very generous and thoughtful about setting up a trust for your education and per- permitting you to have opportunities in college and then in your graduate degree afterwards. And you've written this book and you speak to many people about it and you give presentations about the book. Are there What are the major things for someone who's interested in your grandfather or who reads this book that you want them to know about him? That's an interesting question. I didn't write the book. I... At the end of writing the book, I realized that my real interest was in preserving the humorous and funny stories about being with 
my grandfather at Lake Tahoe or in Atherton for my children, my daughter Madeline and my son Ty. But I also realize that there are many, many people I've met who, I, who, after writing my book, I say, I've written a book, and they say, yeah, I've taken a look at it. Let me tell you about my family story. And the stories are heart-wrenching and beautiful and interesting and fascinating. The generation that my grandfather lived through, the early part of this century, there were grandparents who worked hard. I mean, Ty Cobb worked hard. Every day he worked hard. He showed up in training camp having uh, tramped around mountains with weights in his boots. He was ready to go, and he was determined again. 24 years running, ready to go every year. And there are other stories about grandfathers and parents who have, you can call it sacrifice, but they have. They've worked hard to create a one generation that really moves the family forward, and they can help other members of the family. And that that realization and that openness um, has been something that I think I've gotten a great deal of personal pleasure out of people coming up to me and say, Herschel, you've written a really nice book. Uh, let me tell you about my family. And I say, tell me. <laughs> I've made more new friends, and the stories are fascinating. They're fast, and they're powerful, very, very powerful. And I urge people to start making notes because that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. So... Well, Herschel, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a, a real pleasure. Likewise. Thank you for taking the time, and I hope your fans enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. 